Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 20, verse 14, and Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. You shall not commit adultery. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Alexa. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to take a moment. Um, just first, thank you, Chris, for that lovely prayer. Thank you, Alexa, for reading. Um, I know it's a little bit warmer than usual in here. The air conditioning is broken. They're trying to work on it and fix it. Thanks for your patience. I know... Uh, if you just don't move, just go like this, it'll all be all right. We're going to keep the, uh, the air moving around in here. Um, and, but, it, I mean, it's apropos, though, right, for the past 15 months. We've been trying to do and reopen together, and that's why one of the reasons I want to take this moment for a second, because our, I need to thank our COVID-19 task force that's been uh, tirelessly, weekly, in some ways, meeting to try to figure out what's the best way, what's the most loving way for us to do church together. And um, it, one of the things I said a couple weeks ago was we're, we're reevaluating the guidance from the CDC and our local Department of Health. Um, and this is what we concluded, is that beginning next week, sorry for this week, you're still in mass, but beginning next week, uh, you're going to notice some new changes. Uh, uh, first, on our online registration form, it's going to be a little more seamless for families. Folks have asked us to make it a little bit easier. There's all these, like, boxes and things to check. And we still have to do some of those, but we're going to make it easier. So you're going to see that beginning this week. Secondly, and more significantly, we're going to do seating differently starting next week. The pandemic has created dif- uh, uh, multiple needs. There, everybody is in a different place. And we're still asking, what's the way to do the most loving thing? So what we, uh, we know some of you are fully vaccinated and you're comfortable being without masks and social distancing. Others of you, even if you've been vaccinated, some of you are more comfortable still uh, wearing masks, still kind of uh, keeping distance from individuals. And so whether, no matter if you're vaccinated or not, uh, we're we're gonna try to give you guys options for seating. So next week, what we're gonna do is we're gonna create designated areas. In the orchestra space, uh, for those who are vaccinated, those who are comfortable, no social distancing, no masks will be starting next week. Some people are clapping. Um, It's a clappable thing because this is something we've been trying to get back to. It is something we're trying to get back to, so that's really good. The balcony upstairs are going to be those uh, who are not vaccinated or who just prefer to uh, still remain socially distanced. um, If you have children, of course, you can sit with your your parents. Parents, you can sit with your children no matter where you want to sit. That's not going to be changed. Um, We have no interest in, in policing at this church. So please don't hear this as like, there's a clean section and an unclean section. That's not what we're doing here. 
what we're doing here is creating spaces where we can be the most loving to the most amount of people, uh, no matter where you are on that spectrum. And therefore, um, I think this is important for us. Moving forward to this, this next phase, we need to trust each other. We need to trust each other that people have made the decisions and have made uh, and, and um, are making the decisions for themselves and what's best given the space that we have here. Um, so this is going to begin next week. Registration will be available tomorrow again. We're going to send out an email with more details. There will be an FAQ page. And I just, just want to take the moment again. Thanks for being with us in this journey. It's not been easy. It's uneven. Uh, I, last year, 2020, as a pastor, the pandemic, the, the presidential elections, um, a lot of stuff has been going on about race. I mean, as a pastor, as a church, whether you say something or not say something, people are upset. And it's been really difficult for our church and for the staff. But we're, we're appreciating, we appreciate you all being part of, of this process with us and that you've committed to us in, this, in the pandemic. So I'm excited to say that we're going to keep doing this uh, with the feedback from you, with our COVID-19 task force, with the people of Ethical uh, trying to resume activities as safely as possible. I'm thankful that today, zero to 24-month-old children uh, have a place downstairs right now. So we're slowly getting back. Uh, that's also something to be thankful for. And, and our children's director, Jenny Bounds, who's tirelessly working to make that happen, it is, it is a, a feat of, of strength and will to make this work. So again, we're really thankful for that. Uh, that being said, I know not everybody is in the same boat. I know everybody feels strongly. But, so, but for those with health concerns, we understand you're going to maybe want to keep live streaming from home. I've also been told there's some people who we're not going to come back to uh, church until those kind of distancing and, and mask regulations were over. Wherever you are, again, we're still going to provide for you. We're going to keep live streaming going on indefinitely at this, at this time. Whatever it is, we love you. We're glad you're part of this. We're glad you're part of this thing. We might agree. We might disagree. Um, we can have these different opinions and rationales, and that's okay because we're a family, and that's what churches do. We, do, we stick together and do this together. So um, next, again, there'll be an email that will go out. You can see our FAQ page. You can text in questions. We do that at our service as well. So um, thanks for that moment just to kind of clarify what we're doing starting next week. Very exciting stuff. All right. Now, we have been going through at this service at this church, a series on the Ten Commandments. And we've been doing that because I've been trying, we've been told by so many folks, here's how to live life. Here are the commands to follow. Society, culture, every culture has a set of commands. The phrase, you, you know, you do you, is a command. And what we've been trying to do is compare and contrast Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, with the world's commands, and we're looking at and trying to figure out what will bring about the most amount of human flourishing. And we must ask that question. And today we're, getting, we're at the seventh commandment on adultery. And this is a very important topic. This is a huge topic. And I'm just going to let you down really easy right now. We're not going to be able to fully unpack this at this service today for a number of reasons. One, the topic itself Two, we, are st we still have a lot of children in our service. And because of that, because we're still not back up and running fully post-COVID, I think it's important to acknowledge we're not going to be able to look at every single aspect and every de detail that this text demands today. And yet we're still going to be able to get at its essence. Because, and we have to, because more than probably any other topic, 
that the church talks about, it's this place that people are most sensitive about. Because again, we're not just talking about concepts, we're talking about people's lives. And this is the place where, it's the most obvious place where there's a rift between what modern culture says will bring human flourishing and what the Bible says. And it's, it's, but it's more than that. I have, we have to confess up here too. The church has not handled this topic well. And, we, and I want to admit that to you all now. We've overemphasized and underemphasized this at the same time, if that's possible. We've messed up on every side. We've over-elevated this topic, and we've under-elevated it. We've under-elevated it because we probably don't enough talk about a healthy biblical sexual ethic. We don't talk about how in the proper space, this relationship can bring about so much human flourishing, so much safety, so much comfort and care and acceptance. It's possible that when in a relationship that, uh, you know, that is living out love for other, sex in marriage is a powerful act, can be of transparency, of closeness, and intimacy. And we don't talk about that enough, so we have to confess that. But we also, we've also over-elevated it. The church as a whole has taken sexual purity and elevated it and made it more important than pride. We've made it more important than greed. We've made it more important than other forms of brokenness. And I think that's why Christians generally in culture are labeled as judgmental. Because it seems like we're always repelling the people who don't fit the church's designed specific sexual ethic. And if you zoom out and look at Jesus in the Bible, Jesus seems to always attract the people who don't fit the particular moral ethic. And he tends to repeal the people who do think they fit it. And so today, why is it then the church seems to attract the very people that Jesus repelled and at the same time repelled the people Jesus attracted? That means there's something off. And I believe it starts with this topic. So that's why we have to deal with this. That's why we have to get into this. And, um, and understand the proper handling of this command. Let's break it down in three ways. Let's look at uh, the narrative culture tells us. Let's look at Jesus' narrative, the narrative that Jesus tells us. And then lastly, how potentially through this command that we, our personal lives, our personal narratives can have a happy ending. All right, so culture's narratives, Jesus' narrative, and then how our personal narratives through this command can have a happy ending. First, the narrative our culture tells us. Go back to the text on your, on your phone if you can. And it's a very simple command. Do not commit adultery. But it, it's interesting how Jesus always in the Matthew 5 passage feels like there needs to be further explanation. So the phrase he uses in verse 27 that we've, he's used a couple times is, you have heard it said. Now this isn't actually printed in your bulletin, but if you go to, uh, I think it's, Matthew 5, uh, or sorry, yeah, Matthew 5, verse 43. Uh, he says there, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Just, for, just so you guys know, if you look in Scripture, there's no Scripture passage that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So whatever Jesus is doing is he's not comparing Scripture to Scripture. He's comparing the culture statements, popular phrases, and he's, he's saying, let's compare that with what I have to say. Therefore, we need to do the very same thing. We need to compare what culture says to what Jesus says. And I think there's two main themes culture says today. Number one, it says sex is everything. 
Sex is everything. It's all around us. It's in our art. It's in our movies. It's in our ads. It's how we sell things. It's in our clothing even. And what culture says is we need this to know who we are. We, this is so important to who we are. This is at the center of, of human fulfillment, that this is the essence of our identity. And because of it, to restrict it in any way, in any form or any fashion, it's not just unnatural. It's unkind. It's unloving. And now people are saying it's actually unjust. That everybody has the right to do what you want, with whomever you want, wherever you want, with your body, as long as it's consensual. That's, that's the line. And in fact, if you don't do this, put in the negative, you don't actually know who you are because society says it's who you are attracted to or actually who you're not attracted to that defines your nature. That, and because it's at the center of your identity, you're not allowed to prohibit it from anyone else. I remember one college student when I was working um, on college campuses as a, as a minister, he, he kind of put it this way. This, is the, the, uh, this isn't an exact quote, but he essentially said this. He said, why would you want to deny people from feeling good? As long as nobody gets hurt, as long as there's two consenting adults, why would you want to not let people experience the warmth together that you can have in this hard, hard world. And what he, I think what he was getting at essentially is this. He's saying, if this is for pleasure, therefore to deny it is morally wrong. Because why? The, the, the assumption beneath that is if this is your, the center of your authentic self, to express your desires is the essence of who you are, and therefore that's what we need to do in this world. Because it's the ultimate thing. And without it, you're nothing. Why? Because it's everything. That's what culture tells us, one theme. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. You know the second theme the world tells you? Sex is nothing. At the very same time, what people say in culture is, hey, this is no big deal. This is not some high, sacred uh, thing to find your identity in. This is just natural need. This is just appetite. This is just uh, something that, you know, when you're hungry, you eat food. And when you need physical or emotional uh, support, urges, you have sex. So it's not for long-term relationship building. It's not for identity. This is only for consumption, right? When you're, when you're hungry, you eat pizza, right? We don't make a big deal about eating pizza, so why do we make a big deal about sex? Lauren Winter, in her book, uh, she puts it this way. She's, uh, she says this, secular culture tells us simultaneously it's no big deal 
and it's the most important thing in the universe. That sex is so banal and meaningless that you, have, that you can have random casual sex with the next door neighbor, and yet sex is so hugely significant that we can't possibly live without it. And so here what she's pointing out, our culture is, is sort of like Jekyll and Hyde. It's, it's, uh, it, it's two-faced. It's, it's telling us that it's everything and it's nothing. So is it any, you know, wonder for us why there's so much whiplash going on culturally right now? To in one breath be told that your identity, you know, because your desires matter, this is your identity, and at the same time you're told, by the way, you know, whatever desires, it doesn't really matter. Right, that's what whiplash is going on. There was a a great article in the New York Times um, a a little while ago by a a woman named Courtney Sender. The title of it is, he asked permission to touch but not to ghost. And she's wrestling with this. After her partner ghosted her, she was very upset. This is what she said. She said, he asked for my consent, so sex felt like a sacred act. But then he disappeared. A sacred act? One of her, my roommates laughed. Girl, you sure don't treat it like that. She was right, in a way. Asking about my feelings during sex didn't extend to caring about them after sex. And she's, she's bothered by this. So she ends the article this way. Our bodies are only one part of the complex constellation of who we are. To base our culture of consent on the body alone is to expect the caretaking involved is only physical. And so here what she, she's saying, she goes, you know, you know, her roommate's like, listen, girl, you treat this like it's nothing. But now you're over here going, wait, this is just one part This is just the physical side. There's so much more. And I think what she's working through is that our culture talks about consent only as the body alone. And it can't be just that. And she's saying this doesn't quite work. There's there's a disjointedness. And so what we need to ask before we move on is this. Is it possible what you've been told from day one in your life, in culture, about this is not the whole picture? Is it possible on the one hand, culture has made this an idol to get your identity, and at the same time, it's trying to say it's no big deal? That the view that without your sexual expression, you can't have a good life, and at the same time, it has no real meaning at all. See, I, I personally think it, can't, it shouldn't be all or nothing. It shouldn't be, but that's what culture is telling us. That's the cultural narrative, all or nothing. All right, number two. Then what's Jesus' narrative about this? Culture says, right, culture says uh, it's all or nothing. But Jesus, look at verse 28. It's one line, and we're going to pull a lot out of it. He says this, I tell you the truth, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, you're like, wait a second. How are you going to get at, what are you going to get out of this? Two things, one phrase. There's an ethic that underlines Jesus' statement, and then there's, an underlying vision to that ethic. First, the ethic. Um, this is what you need to know. He's singling out men right here. Yes, you can apply this to everywhere, but he's, he literally says, if you look at a woman. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, it was acceptable in sex for religious married men, the way that people operated, is they could go out and they could have sexual adventures with people as long as it wasn't another married woman. And yet at the same time, 
women were expected to have no relations with anyone at all. And so what Jesus is doing here in this moment is he's making a distinction, saying everybody's supposed to remain faithful. And so he's calling out the double standard, which we know there's still double standards that go on in our modern culture too. He's saying that has to end. And what I find fascinating about modern culture, everybody says, hey, it's about consent. It's all about consent. And even the article we just talked about brings that up. But what our text shows us is the origin of consent. That humanity didn't just evolve one day and say, now we know consent's the best thing. No, no other ancient culture had this idea of equality between the sexes. And it came from here, that this ethic of consent is not independent of everything else. That consent is, shouldn't just be for our bodies, that even this New York Times article points out. It's how you treat people, how you engage them as full humans, how to honor them as equal. You can hear it in the background of Jesus' line. That it's not just our, our bodies, but it's our hearts. It's, what we, it's how we view people. It's what we do with our heart, our mind, and our life. And therefore, consent shouldn't be a moment. Real consent, biblical consent, is a lifetime of treating people with dignity, respect, and honor. And I think that's the ethic that Jesus said is behind that statement. But there's also an underlying vision. Jesus says uh, that uh, because men were getting away with what women couldn't, back then, as it is now, sex has a, a power element to it. That back then, men had the power, and so they could get what they wanted as long as with somebody who was on a lower economic or power uh, structure. And so when Jesus comes up and says, hey, all you men, you need to abide by this, what he's saying is, is the underlying aspect of uh, envision for sex can't be about power, which I know people still make it that, but it's, it's supposed to be about love. And that means then, if that's true, if that's what's behind Jesus' statement, then it can't be, sex can't be just about animalistic urges. It's not nothing. And yet if it's about love, what's love? Love is at least a commitment to someone else for their betterment. That means it can't be everything because if it's, it's not fully about your desires. It's not fully about your fulfillment. If it's about love, it's about fulfillment of somebody else. And that means it can't be everything. So guys, hear how balanced this is, right? It, it's, if the culture says it's of everything or nothing, Jesus shows up and says, no, neither one of those extremes is actually the proper place for sex. That it's about whole life intimacy. Nakedness physically should bring about, in real consent, treating people with full dignity, respect, honor, and commitment. That woman in that New York Times article, she doesn't just want consent physically. She wanted it interpersonally. She wanted it emotionally. She wanted it spiritually. So being ghosted being ignored, having her humanity uh, shut down, she's like, that's not right after uh, what we went through together physically. Because she knew it was more. Have you guys ever wondered why being naked physically still has the power that it has? It has that power because what's happening when you do that is you're going to see things that you usually tend to hide from other people. When you're naked physically, you're getting to see every aspect uh, a friend, a British friend of mine called it your wobbly bits. I don't know if you ever heard that phrase. You, get to, you could see everybody's wobbly bits. Being naked then biblically 
is not just seeing the wobbly bits physically. You should be seeing them emotionally, economically, spiritually. They're all made to go together. So when someone looks at you and says, I see all of you, not just physically, I see all the parts of you that you generally try to hide from other people. I see you to your very core, and I don't want to just spend the night with you. I want to spend every night with you because I've made a promise to you till death do us part, and I'm going to make that a public vow so everybody else knows where I stand in marriage. Do you know how powerful that can be? That's the proper place. I'm not saying there's not brokenness in marriage. We're going to get there. But the potential that's here, that sex can be a bonding agent meant to reveal physical nakedness as part of a larger structure of emotional, spiritual, economic, legal nakedness together. And guess what? Our culture doesn't get that. Our culture does not uh, see the beauty. It's forgotten how loving, how much dignity and honor and respect that can be found in that type of relationship. And casual sex can't do it. Casual sex goes like this. I'm going to be naked with you for an hour or so. But what this is saying is, I want to be with you every hour. Right? I want to be not just naked with you physically. You can see these physical wobbly bits. I just don't want you to see all these wobbly bits over here. If you're not going to give your whole life, then you shouldn't be giving your, your whole body. Now, um, that's Jesus' narrative. Some of you sitting here are going, yeah, that's what I believe. I believe that view. I agree with Jesus' view about marriage and sex. If that's what you're saying right now, you're not hearing Jesus. You're actually mishearing Jesus. Because when he says everybody looks lustfully, right? You're, when he says this is something that happens in the heart, it's the same, he says, not just with your body. You're doing in your heart what you're doing in your body. He goes, it's the same thing. And what he's trying to say is, and this is what how it happens, religious people go, oh yeah, he's talking about those people over there. And he's, guess who he's talking to? The people that are around him are all religious people. He's saying, I'm talking to you. It's that I know you think you've been faithful with your body, but since I know you haven't with your heart, it's just as bad. And so, for instance, some of you who say, I, I'm just going to stay single my whole life, Right? Why? Because I want to be independent. What you're doing there is you're keeping, by keeping your options open, you're not wanting to give yourself personally to somebody else. There's a form of lust in that. You say, well, that's not my definition of lust. The Greek word for lust here is the Greek word epithemia, which means over-desire. You can over-desire somebody who's not your spouse. Guess what? You can over-desire your spouse. You can over-desire not having a spouse. You can over-desire having one as well. Because it's all about inordinate desires. It's it, having your desires in an improper place. And so what Jesus is trying to say, and this is what's, this would be mind-blowing if we actually got this, is that all sexuality is broken. All thoughts are messed up on this. The powerful thing that Jesus is trying to get at is that until we see that it's all broken, we won't start to know what to do with our hearts. We won't even know where to begin. And so this is the last point. If culture's narrative is all or nothing, if Jesus' narrative is radically consensual, 
and a vision of sex not as power but as love. And love is a commitment, and a commitment is a covenant, and a covenant is what marriage is, and therefore sex should be inside marriage. How then can our personal narratives have a happy ending? And this is where we need to, you know, just do a little introspection. If we're single, we're struggling. Why? Because culture is saying, this is everything. This is where you can find your meaning and identity. And at the same time, it's saying, it's nothing. doesn't matter. Just go. Go do it. You do you. That's confusing. But if you're married, it, <laughs> there's, this, there's this narrative inside of Christianity that if you get married, then all those kind of like loneliness and problems disappear. You want to know what's the most lonely? Being married where you're not supposed to be lonely and you still feel lonely. That's what's going on in marriages too. The loneliness is there. The sexual desires and dysfunction is there. The misaligned expectations of how your life is going to go is there. One of my friends in ministry, we were hiking over in England, and he said, when will Christians own up that everyone is sexually broken? And until we own that up, there is no hope about our way to love and serve other people and actually know what to do with ourselves. And I was like, oh my God, I, I'd never, I hadn't thought about it that way. He, he said, it's everywhere. Jesus is saying, I'm not just talking about sexuality anymore. I'm talking about your entire heart. I'm talking about what you're doing or not doing in your marriages, what you're doing or not doing in your singleness, what's happening in your relationships. And Jesus is saying, anyone who lusts, anyone who, who, who doesn't want the person for just, for all of who they are, but what they can do for you, that's lust. I was actually walking with my daughter the other day, and, and, and I was like, lust is not wanting the person, it's wanting what the person can do for you. But that means then lust, take out sex for a second. What's lust? At the core of lust, it's placing yourself at the center of reality and saying, I got to get what I need for me, despite of what it might do to you. That's the core problem of the human condition that is fracturing and breaking the world, and it's happening in our hearts. It's happening in our church. And until we're re- willing to say, that's why condemnation is deserved. That's where, listen, if you're doing that, if we're really doing that, then that means humanity, all of us, deserve condemnation. How we treat other people. And yet with the story of the Bible, the amazing thing about the Bible is that while we deserve condemnation, we don't get it at the end of the day. There's consequences. There's always consequences. But condemnation is the end, at, what ends, ends up with your soul, what ends up with your heart. If sex in marriage is to be a covenant renewal system, where we're repeatedly giving ourselves to each other and renewing that over and over and over again in promises and vows, that's supposed to depict God's commitment to us, always saying, I'm with you, I'm for you, I want you. And if you, again, zoom out, the whole nature of the Bible talks about the people of Israel, God's people, as an adulterous nation. And if it's talking about God's people, then guess what? He's talking about us now. We are an adulterous nation because he loves us and we don't love him. Not in the right way. And yet when Jesus, when he says, by, look, look in our verses 29 and 30, when he says that your actions don't just have, uh, you know, local ramifications, they have cosmic aspects where you could destroy yourself. When he says you're in danger of hell, you know what he must have been thinking? The very place that he was going to have to go to to win you back, to bring you back in. He was condemned 
So now, in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And that, that phrase might be the most important phrase in the Bible. And I bring this up to you because I think, again, we can't touch on everything. I think there's a lot of shame here. I think this is the place that not just where Christianity and, and the world divides, but actually people who call themselves Christians in the, in the Bible, they, we don't actually follow this. And there's shame about what we've done or not done sexually. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done or not done. Jesus is saying, I died for that. If you're hurting in your marriage, I died for that. If you're hurting because you're not in marriage, I died for that. If you're hurting because of what has been done to you or against you, Jesus died for that. And I have to keep saying this over and over and over again because until you're filled by the love of Jesus, until there is now no condemnation, in not just the world or just a statement, but in your heart, let that grace hit you. Let that love impact you. You will be continued to fill with shame. You'll, you will fill yourself with shame. The voices in the back of your head. Michael, you don't deserve. Michael, you can't be loved. Michael, you, you're not who you say you are, and you're a fraud. You're going to listen to that because you're not going to hear no condemnation. You will continue to lust sexually or cosmically unless you're hearing no condemnation. Recently, um, I've, been, I've been pretty bummed just the past couple weeks. Just how I've responded to criticism, how I, how I handle approval or lack thereof. And it's so interesting when you kind of can take a seat back and look at your life and you go, man, that little thing, that, a, a picture or a, a, a statement, what somebody says to you or not says, it just can derail your whole like, aspect of how you see yourself. And... You know, the way I normally try to deal with that, when, it, when that happens, this is what I do to myself, is I say to myself, come on, Michael. <laughs> I don't know if you ever do this. I, I have this, like, I walk around the house sometimes and go, dang it! And my wife's like, what, what's wrong? I'm like, no, I'm nothing. Don't worry about it. I'm just talking to myself. But I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to give myself a pep talk. I'm trying to force myself and wrestle myself to change. And it sometimes works, but it usually doesn't. At least not for long, because... What if, what if those statements, what if we took that shame, what if we, we took the sexual brokenness and the heartache and the approval issues, we took it all in everything, and somehow, whatever we know that should be different in us, if we heard Jesus speak the words of Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I used to sit with college students. I, I used to make them just say this statement over and over again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, 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 you didn't, you didn't hear it. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Have you, what does that mean for your shame? What does that mean for your sin? What does that mean for my approval issues? Because I wouldn't need what the world's gonna tell me if I had that. If I, if I had the ownership of his grace active in my life, it would move me out in the world in a completely different way. It's only when we stop doing it ourselves, when we start accepting and just sitting and letting that grace wash over us. It doesn't mean you haven't messed up. It doesn't mean there's not changes to be made. It means that at the end of the day, you won't 
be cast out. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you haven't done. Jesus doesn't either. He says, I already died for it. I already went there. Will you accept that? Will you take that? If you're a Christian, some of you have said that you've given your life to Christ, but you haven't given your bodies. And frankly, since it's all connected, you can't give your life to Christ if you haven't given your bodies as well. And I know that's hard, and I know what we're asking from that. But what Jesus is saying is, is there is a complete unity here. We'll have to go into it another time about how human flourishing is more possible lived in this way. If you're not a Christian here today, make this your identity. The world's saying your identity can be achieved. It can't. But you can receive this. He will not leave you. He will not forget you. He will not leave you or forget you. What William Cowper puts it better than I can. He says this, Poor though I am, despised, forgot, yet God, my God, forgets me not. I'll say it one more time. Poor though I am, despised, forgot, yet God, my God, forgets me not. He forgets us not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's warm. It's, it's a little... It's, it can be hard. We have distractions in our mind and our hearts. There is nothing more important for us to do today than to worship you and to love you. Father, the concerns and cares, the needs, the things that we think we need to have life, to have identity. Psalm 92 comes to us and tells us there's nothing greater than to worship you. We can worship you. Why? Because there's no condemnation. It looks free. It wasn't. It was costly. You went through hell and death for us because it's what is proper and service. It's what justice demands. And Father, if we just own that, we owned it just a little bit more today than we did yesterday. It brings a radical, we would love our children better. It would soften us. It would let us be less defensive. It would allow us, it would move us out, it would energize us when we feel we can't even, we can't, this pandemic has sapped our strength. It would give us supernatural abilities to move out in powerful ways because you have come to us first. Help us to see this, help us to taste this, help us to sing this. We praise things in your name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.